0: To another episode of One from the Vaults, the podcast that brings you all of the dirt, gossip, and glamour from trans history. I'm your host, Morgan M. Page. This year, to celebrate the fifth anniversary of the podcast, I'm bringing together some of my favorite artists, historians, and archivists to talk about the work they do with trans history. Because though I would love to take credit for all of trans history, In reality, there are so many people doing incredible work out there, and I really want to share this platform with them. This month, I'm speaking to Librada Gonzalez-Fernandez of the Cubane Queer Archive, a project drawing together the archives of queer and trans Cubans on the island and in the Cuban diaspora. Librada is a young trans woman based in Miami and New York who has spent the past couple of years working on this archive with no funding. Like me, she just wants to get this history off the shelf and back into the hands of the community. So yeah, again, thank you so much for joining me today Librada. Um, Ever since our mutual friend Serge turned me on to your work I've been completely obsessed. I follow um, the archive very obsessively and I read every post Um, both because I'm super interested for lots of reasons in Cuban queer history but also um, it's been so helpful for me because I'm learning Spanish right now and it's a bilingual archive so I'm like challenging myself to try to read the Spanish before I skip to the English. So it's really good. Good. Um, But I was thinking, maybe we could start with one of the stories that you found so far compiling the archive, like tell me a story, whatever story comes to mind.
1: Okay, so I'll tell you exactly um, what I'm doing now, which is I'm doing research on female impersonation, drag, all that kind of performance and burlesque in Cuba because it all started back in October. I was online uh, looking at magazine um, from this drag show in, the, in New York in the 70s. And I found this performer. His name was Adrian. And that's the only name I had, which was in his real name. And I look him up and I ended up finding somebody to public records who lived in New York, who was 93. I went to interview him. And all this led to me diving into the world of female impersonation. And a lot of, um, I've, I met a lot of gay men at first in this world. And I was, you know, it's just like, I really excited for them, like, where are the trans women in this world? Because I know in my experience going to drag shows and all these uh, in, in this world, there's a lot of trans women who, who still today get initiated into this kind of like, into the world of like, you know, breaking whatever away from their gender, the conceived gender presentation or whatever in this world. So we're the trans women in the 1950s Cuban drag world. And I found none for the longest time or for like a month and a half. And I was really disappointed. And I'm like, wait a minute, these th- these men have to be concealing something from me. They, and, and they indeed they were, um, but that was not the whole story. They were misgendering some people who had passed away and, um, that's something that I knew happened, but I, you know, it, it's hard to tell somebody, oh, he's, it's, it's not a he, it's a she, because you know, it, it's their own experience. So you don't want to talk over them, but in this case I did. Um, but anyway, um, what I found was that a lot of uh, trans women who, who are in this world, because it was the 1950s, because it was around New York, had uh, transitioned physically to the point where they were back in the closet. Where they, where nobody knew that they had, um, that, that that they have, you know, been trans women. It's not been trans women, but like you know, like been clockable at some point in their lives, um, and it, it kind of killed me because I wanted these women to be part of the of, of the research, and all of a sudden I was not dealing with the with the censorship that gay men do, which is like they erase trans with that erasure that gay men do. I was dealing with the erasure that comes with, like, you know, trans women's safety and the fact that they have to survive and they had to. Um, So all this to say is that I'm now at a point in my research in which I'm trying to decide. Do I reach out to them? Do I? How do I how do I go about this? One of them recently passed away, actually, um, like days ago. She was in hospice and she wrote a book. Um, Her name is uh, Marinka Hunter, um, which is also something else I have to say is it's so interesting how so many of them when they change their name they kind of like anglicize it too and the mm-hmm. process of like assimilation in that way too um and I have a I have a book now in the archive which is now a scrapbook that was donated by a gay man that was in the drag world that includes the names of many trans women who are not out who are not uh, out I guess I'll say it that way um and now i have this information in my hand that i can't share i can't kind of because it's you know it's their lives and they're still alive and i can't um i can't say look there's a president to this there are people living here because they're all living they're trying to just live a life and uh be fulfilled um and that's the story is so much more exciting when i can give you the full details of of who these people are but um it's something I knew happened. It's something, you know, in Disclosure, in the documentary, there was a, a one trans woman that recently came out. I forgot what her name was. Um, but I didn't feel it until until now, until I, I did this research and came to that dead end and then realized it wasn't a dead end, but indeed it was in another way. Uh, Cause I couldn't, <laughs> I had this information on my hand, but I couldn't share it. Um, And there was another story. Um, It was the sister of a, of a, of a gay, uh, of a cis gay uh, drag queen. Um, And he kept saying, my brother, my brother, this. And I was like, you know, through the things he told me, I was like, wait a minute, that doesn't sound like a brother. The fact that he was, uh, that that she was uh, taken into, she at 12, she ran away from home and she joined like uh, a group of sex workers and they called them, they called her because this is, Confusing because of uh, other stories uh, he, he told me, they called her by like uh, some Cuban, but that's name. And I just knew it, it, it wasn't, that wasn't just a cis gay man and indeed it wasn't. And it was through another trans woman in New York that I found out that um, Pamela was indeed a trans woman. Um, but when I asked the cis uh, gay drag queen, do you have a picture of your sister? All he could provide was a 1950s pre-transition black and white photo in which a dog was more in focus than his own sister. And I was just like, wow. And (laughs) all these things are coming really like, you know, coming really hitting home because since the pandemic, I moved back home uh, to my family in in Miami. And I have seen a lot of not permanently, I don't want to do this. I'm just trying to save rent in New York, but um, it has um, it has really hit home for me because I have seen kind of like my erasure or the process of, of my marginalization in real time as I compare it to how the this marginalization, this marginalization process happened for these people who are older and how it's happening for me um, in the way that my family doesn't address me by my name or doesn't address me by my pronouns. And then the, the up and coming generations, my nieces, who don't see me as your aunt, you know, all those things. Um, and then there it is. The, the end of that line is, is seeing a picture of you know your own sister. You don't even have a picture of your own sister after she's passed away.
0: Wow. That's really intense. <laughs> yeah. And <laughs> uh,
1: I didn't want to leave with a, with a, with a mood killer. Um, <laughs> but, but um, it's, it, um, It hasn't given me, uh, it's given me a lot of hope in a strange way and a lot of relief to know these people did exist Hmm. and that I was able to find them.
0: Yeah, very powerful. And I I feel like this what you've just described really brings up a lot of the themes that I hope we'll go into as we talk today. I'm like in my head, I'm like, oh, she's hitting all the good ones. Like there's things here about like the ethics of archival practices, um, uh, diaspora and assimilation, like all these really interesting topics that I have written down that I wanna go into. Um, but before we jump directly into those, like how did Kubani Queer come about? Like what is it exactly how did you start doing it um yeah just give me the elevator pitch on it
1: okay so i i, lo- I love starting with i was very lonely uh, because i think it's a very um universal feeling um i was very lonely when i started uh queer and i was i was trying to find a community i didn't know how to find it um i i had just moved to new york i was you know, from Cuba, and then raised in Miami. I was always hot, and you know, never cold. So all of a sudden, I'm in New York in February. I have to wear all these kinds of coats. I can't go out because it's too cold for me. I have no friends, and uh, my refuge at that point was the library. So I went to the library and I started doing research, and I found uh, Reynaldo Arenas's um, "Before Nightfall," which mind blowing. That that I that for the first time I was like. Because I came to the U.S. when I was eleven, I learned, or I came into my queerness around my teen years. So I, you know, I, I found my queer community in English, but I found my kind of my this the foundation of who I am in Spanish. So I didn't know those things existed together, or that I could even put those things together. Um, and then, the, you know, having somebody speak about this world. And um, I don't want to say, I don't want to, I don't want to curse, but let me know if it's okay. It. <laughs> I will. <laughs> Great. I was like trying to find this world of factory and like transvestite wonder in Spanish. Um, I was like, oh my God, I could actually, I don't have to code switch. I can, I, I, I can, you know, I can really be those two things at the same time. Funny enough, it was Renal Berenas' book which is very transphobic, very racist. And mm-hmm. as as much as it is beautiful too. Um, and then I was like, okay, I'm done with this book. It was great. There has to be a collection of like trans authors of like non-binary people, whoever in Cuba. And then, you know, uh, the people who I found, you know I found one person who was one non-binary person in Cuba who I, um, you know, from this age. And then I found by trans women literature i couldn't find a lot and i found that there was a lot of cis gays talking about trans women and trans people in general and then i was like well where where are we you know and then of course these books were written in the past too so a lot of the people a lot of people who came out later were also misgendered at the point um and all this led to you know i wanted to i was reading at the library i wanted a community i was I was thinking about my friends in Miami who were second generation Cubans who did not have a connection with the Cuban community, even less with the Cuban queer community. And I was like, wait a minute, I can do this. I can kind of bridge that gap between, because also the people in Cuba, they don't have a connection to my friends in the US. Mm. I know both languages. This is like, uh, I can can speak in both languages in both cultures, you know? Maybe I can bridge that gap. I can, I can bring together those two cultures. I can, I can make my friends feel like they have a heritage and make myself feel like I have a heritage. And, you know, with all modesty aside, I wanted a project that, like, preserved me too. I was afraid of being lost. And uh, when I founded Cuban and Queer, I was like, you know what? This is the most beautiful way to, like, preserve myself is to do it through other people. Mm-hmm. And, to, and to keep myself alive through, um, I don't know, through like an act of love, of keeping my friends alive or my ancestors alive. And it's given me a lot of purpose in that way too.
0: Yeah. That's really beautiful. One of the um, things, I mean, I relate so much to what you're talking about because I feel like in a similar vein, my whole podcast has been this attempt to reconnect like my friends and my communities with the lineage that they come from, that we've been, had this sort of historical rupture from, you know? Um, But you wrote about it so beautifully on one of your Instagram posts, you wrote, um, to a queer archive that decentralizes cisgender and white experiences, to a queer archive that will include a diversity of sexualities and physical abilities, to a queer archive that belongs to us. Can you talk a bit about how this stance kind of shapes your archival practice and like the stories you you dig into? Yeah.
1: I, have to, I have to start with, um, especially I have been trying really hard to find more black stories of, uh, you know, or, you know, stories that are outside of who I am, you know, a white able-bodied Cuban. Um, and, uh, I haven't tried to find, you know, more transmasculine stories, more Black stories, uh, more um, pe- stories of people with disabilities. Uh, and I'll say in the in the in the stories of Black queer Cubans, it has been really hard. Not because they're not there, but the way they're kept, like in these archives. That you know, like I, the other day, I had to reach out to the University of Arkansas, and they're closed because now, because of the pandemic, it's even more difficult. Um, everything is kept away, it's coded so that you don't find, so it's coded in a different language, first of all. And, and I'll say that I wanted an archive, not with the Library of Congress of cataloging system or whatever, I wanted to, you know, catalog it myself as I, as I know my community. Um, and in a kind of like boost of confidence uh, in, in the kind of way that like cis white men do without any permission, I just said, you know what, I'm a historian now, fuck it, I'm gonna, be the person who does this work. I'm not the most prepared. I'm very young and I'm very inexperienced, but nobody else is doing it. Or if they're doing it, they're doing it wrong.
0: <laughs> so
1: you know, what's wrong with me doing a little, a little bit uh, wrong too, or without experience. Um, I, I I don't want this to be an archive. Uh, that's going to be just my work. Hopefully more people can jump in eventually. Um, recently, there was a post that I removed actually, um,
0: that was going that to be was, my next question for you, actually. Yeah,
1: that, that <laughs> makes sense to this. I removed that post because um, I was talking to a, a colleague who runs Historia Negra de Cuba, which is about queer um, Cuban Black history in general. And he mentioned that, you know, he, he didn't post on his page any, because we were sharing like shitty things that white people say or like have kept in archives, you know, about black history or stupid white perspectives, and then I was like, "Oh my god, you should share this!" Is so it's such a it's good material to share. He's like, "Well, I don't want to share these kind of things because I don't want to, I don't want to kind of like continue that like line of uh, just trauma porn, I guess." Um, and at first, I was like, "What do you mean you don't want to share? You you only want to share positive stuff?" Is that like? Um... And then I realized, wait a minute, the post that I've um, that I shared that got the most engagement um, reach rather was well everything reach engagement comments everything was the post of a black person being humiliated mm-hmm. and <laughs> all of a sudden I was like wait a minute I'm part of that, that uh, I'm, I'm part of that um, system that's creating black trauma porn mm-hmm. um, and I'll tell you the story of that video actually um, without jumping too far away from that. That video belonged, um, or the video was taken from the Armed Forces Building in Cuba in the 1990s by total movie moment, uh, uh, director of, of the film, uh, Looking for a Space, Kelly Anderson met with a worker from the Armed Forces Building in a probably in an alleyway in Havana and they exchanged a videotape for $300 and she took it to the US and you know, that moment. Um, right after I dug that research, um, cause that had been out for a while. People had kind of forgotten about it. It kind of uh, somebody, uh, people forget about it. And then uh, they started asking Kelly for the, for the video. Cause people just all of a sudden wanted the video. It was the 40th anniversary of the, of the Mariel. Queer studies is like, you know, gaining popularity or whatever. Um, and I just really hate I really hate that I have shared so many stories of uh, of joy, of of just you know of, of, of beautiful queer things, and people don't share that. And also, I have shared stories of hate from the United States, and they don't share that because the narrative that speaks to a lot of Cubans in the exile, especially cis people, is anti-Castro sentiment, and that's about it. Mm. There's not a lot of there's not a lot of um, what is it analysis. From there from there down, it's a lot of just like fuck Castro, he was bad. And then no any no analysis of the US, no critique to this country, no critique to other, you know, to imperialist countries, just right there.
0: Well, I thought it was really I thought it was really interesting. Um, because you know, on your post you write um, that black suffering is not content to boost engagement. And I found that really powerful coming. From an archive before, because I've never seen an archive openly grapple with the ethics of its own archival practice before, ever. Like I've, I follow so many different archives. No one has ever thought in public about it in that way that I've seen, anyway. So I really, I was quite moved. Um, and it is something that, you know, as I've made this podcast over the past five years, Um, I've struggled a lot with the kind of, the broader ethical issues of doing these stories. Um, And I've had to kind of, because like you, I'm also not super trained. I'm not like, you know, I don't have a PhD in history or whatever. I'm just digging around in the archives. Um, Like I've had to really kind of draw up my own lines for where it's ethical to tell a story and where it's not. So now I don't do stories about living people. just as a rule because I don't think like I don't know if I'm outing them like whatever you know I gotta be I have to be careful for people um but yeah I was wondering like are there other angles through which you've kind of thought through the ethics of the work that you're doing like you kind of talked about it earlier with these trans women that you know, who've kind of gone stealth, (laughs) who like aren't out about being trans, but like what other ways has this come up for you? Because of course it's also like a very, my understanding is a tricky political situation for some people in Cuba and for those in the Cuban diaspora who might want to visit. Are these things that you take into account?
1: Absolutely. I mean, I have to say that for that post. Well, first I'm gonna say, I'm. I don't want to be wrong but I know that being wrong is very important to like learning and I was wrong you know I was wrong or whatever it was not I'm not going to put the full blame on myself or whatever because it's it's whatever a dumb game but when I posted that post originally I was really excited in the same way that I you know one time I was at the Cuban Heritage Collection and uh, the librarian Martin came up to me and he's like what are you doing you look so happy And and I'm like I'm looking at uh homophobic cartoons in the 60s and I had a, a smile this day and he was like wait what do you mean <laughs> <laughs> and you know and I was like because this is exciting to me I have proved that my people exist and that video for me was proof that a queer people were treated horribly as the government in Cuba has tried to deny b that Marielle was a very queer exile and that you know, it was a poignant video. That's why I also got shared a lot. It was an 11 second video that sends chills down your spine mm-hmm. as much as it is traumatic. Uh, and I was excited to dig this research and say, where the hell is this from? Where did she take this footage from? Which I ended up calling her because the, the credits from that movie are not in the film. I had to call her and ask where it was from. Um, and I was just excited to share because it, it was research. Um, and I, I kind of like, I battled that idea of like, wait, do I censor it? Do I not? It's, if it was a physical archive, and that video still remains accessible, it's still on the web. I provided the link, provided the information. Whoever wants to can still see it. It's there. Mm-hmm. But I don't need to give it a, you know, a front page in my archive. And, you know, it's still getting comments a year later.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: More than any other post. Um, so, yeah, the ethics I deal with are um, my own personal ethics. The ones, the best ones that I can bring, and one of the things that I try to do is I try to not be puritanical in the way that, uh, you know, institutional archives are, because that 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 hurts, you know, the queer community in, in in the first place, because they 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 haven't they have censored our stories or kept them away from archives for such a long time or erased them, because they thought that you know, queer bodies w- were obscene. So mm-hmm. they 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 said, you know what, it's, this is, does not need to be archived. This is just some tomfoolery or this is whatever the hell. Um, uh, so as much as I try to, you know, apply my own personal ethics, um, I'm not afraid of being wrong or I'm okay with it or I'll be okay. I'll get over that bridge when it comes with being wrong and I will be wrong in the future. So, um. One, the reason why I made that post uh, public and I, you know, made a graphic about my thought process was because part of the reason why I also have an archive is to educate people and not that I am an educator, but you know, for, for people to learn, well, I am an educator, but for people to learn from the process that I went through as well, mm-hmm. which was, you know, calling friends and, you know, calling some of my friends and discussing, and then, you know, grappling with I post this, do I not take it down, uh, um, being transparent, I think that's that's honesty is the best policy here.
0: Yeah, I love that. Um, and what has kind of you you've kind of gestured a bit towards the political situation in Cuba and the the revolutions. Uh, erasure of queer lives and bodies and I do want to get to that but I'll give you a a softball question first which is um like what's the reaction been to the archive from queer and trans Cubans in America as well as those in Cuba? Uh,
1: It has been such a positive reaction I have it, it like overwhelmingly positive you know I don't I have 900 followers or whatever on Instagram but it's in real life, I have, you know, it's, it's, it's so moving when I go to Cuba and people are like, we're gonna organize an event so you can have this and, you know, so you can talk about it. And Librada is the keeper of our stories and whatever. It has really been uplifting in that way. And for the U.S., uh, my friends in the U.S. do the same. And I, I'm, I have no complaints about it. I actually, I'm very moved by it. Um, it, it brought out a bigger sense or a bigger feeling of that community. Um, definitely that I can't do it alone. I'm not thinking that I am I am the speaker of everybody who I'm posting about. Um, but I am kind of like, you know, I'm the little fairy that's going around and like kind of making little connections. Um, and I'm okay with that. I love that. Um, it's draining sometimes, I have to say. And that's I'm on a, that's like a huge talk about how I've been in interviews with people and I'm like, you know after an interview for like six hours straight Mm. you know i i've you know tuned in and out thankfully i'm recording it but i'm tuning in and out constantly um because i'm a very empathetic person and um and you know it's a lot um and it, it triggers a lot inside me too um but generally the reaction in cuba when i go to cuba First thing is people don't know what an archive is a lot of times and also happens here. They don't know what I'm doing, why I'm doing it, why I want old pieces of paper Mm -hmm. um, or why I want like random things that they don't consider important. Um, I think it's also uplifting in a way when I say this that you own, this part of your history deserves your, your underwear in which you took this picture deserves to go and, you know, in a, in a in a box, in an archival, acid-free box, for like posterity. Uh, queer people are not used to feeling important like that a lot. I mean, I'm not as a queer person. Mm. So when you know, when people say, "Wow, your story is incredible," I mean, um, I think I think I, I help do that uh, in a way. I I am. I am uh, creating the importance that queer history might not have in in regular or institutional archives.
0: Yeah, it's amazing. Um, So I hinted at this before, but let's get into the politics for a moment. Um, uh, Cuba has kind of long been idealized on the American left as this sort of symbol of resistance to capitalism. And even like Leslie Feinberg wrote that book, Rainbow Solidarity with Cuba, which definitely presents a certain vision of Cuba as this space of like queer communist liberation. But this doesn't necessarily line up with Cuba's history, right? Where you have like, forced labor camps for homosexuals, and quarantine colonies for people living with HIV, and the sort of let them leave, or um, I think it's like vayan kind of mentality around the Mario Boatlift, right? Um, What can you tell us about how Cuban trans and queer people are treated in contemporary Cuba? Like, I'm thinking of things like the relationship between senesex and queer activists or things like that. Sorry, this is a big mouthful of a question. No, 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 but...
1: <laughs> I got you, <laughs> you know. Um, I have, you know, this is like, uh, I, I have to say, first of all, in the Cuban, you know, on, on the Cuban side, every country makes mistakes. Every country has a sh- shitty historical past regarding queer people. Um, the UMAP camps, the labor camps, um, you know, that was happening, you know, they ended in 1968 and 1969 was the Stonewall, you know, riots. So what the fuck does the U.S. have to like, you know, say about the way they treated queer people here? Um, But in present day Cuba, the thing that bothers me the most, that sits on me like a needle, (laughs) it's that all these people creating change and creating spaces and um, being the saviors of queer people, are cis, het, mostly white people, starting with the person who's sitting at the head of Cynosax, who's a white cis-het woman, you know, whatever, I can, and I have to say this because Cynosax has a lot of, um, what's the word, uh, nuances to it uh, in the political spectrum because I'm I'm the first person when somebody says, fuck Castro, to be like, and, and like you know, I need I need like a, an addendum to that because that's not the only feeling I have. You know, I, I say fuck Castro in the same way I might say fuck Nixon or you know fuck Trump, um, which you know I love how like diametrically opposed they apparently are to me. They're all just this headman, um, <laughs> but um, um, you know when when people come to me saying fuck Castro, I want to say well is the society you want gonna include me? Because the first thing that those people are gonna do, which are like, you know, the semi-fascists that are, or fascists that are living here in Florida, that want liberation for Cuba, because everybody has a different idea of liberation. Those people that want liberation, the first thing they're gonna do is take down Sex and say, no, the faggots don't deserve a fucking space here.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And, you know, that's in the way that I say, you know what, I understand Sex, Mariela and her, you know, posse needs to stay there. Uh, <laughs> but no, I don't want, you know, when people say, you know, so many trans, so many of my trans friends in Cuba who are, who say things like, oh, thank you, Mariela, because, you know, you've uh, saved us from Egypt and you walked us around, you know, across the Red Sea or whatever the hell, um, you know, it, it's disingenuous. It's, it reminds me of the people who argue that, you know, Kamala Harris, you know, you know, paved the way for black women here in the US. It's like, no, there have been countless activists, you know, people who have put their body on the line to make this a reality. Mariela Castro did not, you know, create queerness. And, you know, and, and, you know our struggle, the timing of our struggle does not compare to even the fucking lifetime of Maria Castro. So, you know, whatever we have, we created ourselves. If a cis person gave us the mercy of, you know, creating a center for us, they owe us that already in the first place. And, you know, people might say this is, you know, radical politics or whatever, because I'm not being thankful for what they're saying, for what they've done for us. But we deserve that for the longest time. Um, And, you know, I'm in Miami now, which is a very, as much as, you know, I I live in Hialeah, which is a a working class neighborhood. Uh, My mother is the kind of person that says, oh, I like to work at Home Depot because they put the boot on my back, you know, and they make me work harder. Um, You know, I'm just saying that because there's a lot of class mingled into this, too. Uh, You know, a lot of people who think that um, they have to thank the government for, you know, scraps Mm -hmm. uh, all the time. Uh, And in Cuba, people who are used to, you know, living in, not everybody in Cuba is used to living in shitty conditions, but many people are, and queer people, especially in my hometown, uh, which is, you know, very rural too. um, Of course, they're thankful, because for the first time, somebody's thought of them. But we deserve a lot more than just, you know, Mariela Castro running center sex and all the histories of queerness in Cuba being written by cis-het men too. Mm. Well, not cis-het men, cis people, I'll say that much. Mm -hmm. But like the ones that, the the two that were written from Cuba, well, the first two were written by cis-het men, go figure. Mm -hmm. So, (laughs) thank you. (laughs) for having the privilege.
0: (laughs) Right. Um, So you've just brought up, you know, Hylia and I feel like this is a good jumping off point to talk a bit about diaspora Um, because your archive engages the history of Cubans in Cuba, but also as you've been kind of talking about Cubans who now live elsewhere, let's say, like in the diaspora. So, you know, given the, the revolution's early treatment of homosexuals, the diasporic journey has for many been a necessity, particularly um, in the period of the Mario boat lift. Um, I happen to know some gay Mariolitos myself, actually, um, and Of course, the grand dame of Cuban expat writers in the 20th century is noted lesbian, Lydia Cabrera, right? But I also saw one of your Instagram posts features a clip of how like cis straight people played up gay stereotypes so they would be allowed to leave the island, which I thought was fascinating. So I'm just wondering if you can talk a bit about the Cuban queer diaspora and how you're working that into your archival practice.
1: Well, first there's something that a friend in Havana said that's very um, ingenious and he said that, you know, there's a lot of information coming f- about Cuba into the diaspora, but there's never any information from the diaspora coming into Cuba. And the history of Cubans in the diaspora, it's kind of set, well, until the internet came, which is you know, re- very recently, quite ignored in Cuba, because Cuba was shut off from the world for a long time. And, um, I mean, diaspora is just... I mean, part of my search at the New York Public Library was I wanted, like, you know, my white friends to find this fake idea, which is as false for me as it is for further whiteness. I wanted this, like, I want lineage that I can trace back to, like, the Mayflower or whatever the hell. And, you know, I found myself grappling with being a full peasant that, you know, the, whose history was not recorded, being queer uh, and trying to find queer history in my peasant lineage, which I was like, wait a minute, it's, the closest I have is my uncle who's, you know, who is now, you know, alone, isolated, mentally ill and living alone in a very rural town where he probably is, the reason he's probably living alone is because he's hooking up with men at night, um, you know? And um, so Diaspora is uh, is trying to find a lineage, realizing that I can never, achieve um, such a pure line or whatever. And that has to do with white supremacy, this whole idea of like purity of, you know, like you you have a pure lineage and all that stuff. Um, I couldn't find that. And instead I just said, what if I just, uh, instead of thinking that I'm just some like mutant uh, that doesn't have a uh, pure background, why don't I just say I'm Cuban and throw all caution to the wind? You know, just, that's it. I'm Cuban and fuck it you know, whatever, I have Spanish, I have Spanish in my blood and, you know, whatever the hell 23 and me might say if I do the test. Uh, but I, re- looking at Cuban history, I realized there were so many people who were part of a Cuban canon, like Atue who was like the first revolutionary, who was like this indigenous person. He wasn't Cuban, he was Dominican. And then you have, you know, um, Martí who was like, Jose Martí who was like, you know, you know, white Cuba's leader of like cis, whatever the hell. Mati spent most of his life outside of Cuba. And, and so countless of these examples, Maximo Gomez who was Dominican as well, all these examples of people who are not in Cuba or who are not Cuban, who made a tremendous difference for Cuba. So in that moment, I didn't decide to um, be Cuban or not. I just, it was kind of like, I decided to marry Cuba. I was like, I'm gonna marry this country and just make it mine <laughs> and be audacious that way. <laughs> And I feel like that's what a lot of people in the diaspora kind of have trouble with, you know, in my experience is that they don't feel Cuban enough, don't feel connected to Cuba enough. And Cubans are very, oh, you're from the U.S., you're a gringa, you know, or if you're here, oh, you're not, and when then when they come here and they go to Connecticut or whatever, they're, you know, the most Latina girl, you know, in the world. Uh, so they're stuck in living on a hyphen or having to rent an island in the middle of Florida and Cuba. Uh, and I just said, you know what? I'm Cuban enough, and I'm Green guy enough, and I'm um, I'm tired enough to <laughs> of having to choose of of playing this game of purity. Um, as I said, I just I just chose Cuba, and went with it.
0: I love that. Um, well, speaking of this idea of kind of like purity of lineage or whatever, one of the things um, I was interested in, I can't remember where. I read this if it was in one of your interviews or if maybe it was like literally in our DMs together or something like ages ago. (laughs) But I remember somewhere you were kind of talking about how um, you like consciously made the decision not to make it just like a Cuban trans archive, but to like think expansively with queer. Um, I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit.
1: I was I I did say that in an interview that I was very inspired by the Archivo de la Moria Trans in Argentina, and I was like, oh my god, can you imagine a trans Cuban archive? And then I just thought about how limiting that was in a certain way. Um, first of all, I'm gonna have to figure out what's trans, and and then uh, and then have to cut it cut it off historically, at like what is it, the 1950s or something like that? Because anything else besides that is just like doobie doobie, whatever. Everybody's just gender freaking out. Um, and I was, I was like, you know what? I don't need to make this distinction. I don't need to talk for people. And I certainly do not need to, uh, in a way that, you know, if somebody told me in 50 years that they know what my identity is more than me, I'll say, fuck you, because, you know, who are they to say that as historians like to do, they like to rename things or whatever. Um, so I created a word or I chose a word rather. that was kind of in the, in that kind of, uh, I guess the weird shadow valley of like, uh, you know, of uncertainty, because um, I didn't want to put names on people that they didn't have, and I didn't want to exclude people who were on the trans spectrum and just didn't identify that way because they didn't have access to language or because they didn't, you know, or because trans meant something different back then or didn't mean anything at all. Um, I didn't wanna impose modernity on the the past, you know, onto the past. And I feel like queer is a term that is just as easy to apply as it is to throw away because it really means a lot of things. And it's not not as defined as perhaps saying transgender or whatever the hell. so I, I said that I I I I made that term and I and I put it in Spanish, you know, as many other activists had done and writers uh, in Latin America. Um, which, by the way, I'll tell you the reception I had from that term in Cuba when I first took the archive there. Oh, I was um, very
0: interested. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> when I first got there, you know, people were like, "Oh, is isn't queer like exporting American uh, theory to the and to the to, to Cuba? and that imperialist?" And I was like. Let me tell you that, um, you know, the word Marigón that you so much fight for or, you know, Pajaro or whatever, all that comes from Spain. And what is this replacement of, like, colonizer culture? Why do you think that your Spanish language is more pure than, you know, an English term that when it's new and when you you create some, like, Cuban term that can define this, queer can go, you know, down the the, the trash chute whenever you want. I'm not married to it. Uh, it's just it's uh weird (laughs) or queer enough to like work. (laughs) Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it is kind of interesting, this like, um, privileging of words that come from Spain, especially when, you know, Cuba has, um, obviously a variety of Afro-Cuban cultures and indigenous cultures, as well as Chinese culture. Um, many of whom have their own words for kind of queer identities, like in the Orisha in, um, religion in Cuba, there's particular words like adodi, for example, um, that Lydia, Lydia Cabrera in particular is known for popularizing in her books. Um, do people just like not feel connected to those terms broadly in Cuba? Um, the
1: the the thing with Lydia Cabrera, I have to say, is that Lydia, as much as she, her research, she did the thing that I'm afraid to do, which was she was like, I have research and I'm going to publish it, and you know, it, <laughs> it it uh it helped the world, but not the people she was researching about, perhaps. Um, and I think people, one, a lot of the research is published outside of the of, outside of Cuba. And I don't know much about her, uh, but, um, and I feel like perhaps because she was academic or perhaps because she had kind of screwed over the Abaqua or stuff like that, people were kind of like, but I do hear, I, do, I did hear a lot of, uh, of that talk from Tato who was like uh, a gay, uh, cis-gay uh, Cuban historian who was uh, incorporating those words into like, this is black, queer, Cuban heritage. Um, I think the reason why it's not incorporated, you know, there are many terms to self-identify in Cuba that are fully not incorporated and people that don't accept. But one of them is one that seems so, you know, basic here. It's, you know, Afro-descendant or, you know, Afro-Cuban. That term, most people reject. A lot of Afro-Cubans reject. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of, you know, people reject the word queer. A lot of people reject the word faggot. You know, because it's they're, you know, they're based on that idea that this is pejorative or whatnot. Um, and, you know, I, I might be the most radical or whatever, but I love them all. You know, I love the bad ones and the good ones um, because they're mine now. Um, and um, I think I'll dare, I'll dare say the reason why people don't, like, um, take those terms in from the, the Afro-Cuban culture is... Uh, uh, I I don't I I guess it's like lack of access to them or it kind of like lack of an organ organized um, or like a, if there were a movement that said we are the adolescents or whatnot you know that would help with with that identification but um, I'm not sure if I said the term right um, but in Cuba a lot of uh, even the feminist movement there's no feminist movement in Cuba there's no uh, there's no black movement. You know, there is black activism, you know, in different places. And there's feminist activism in different places, but they can't get toge- they can come together. Um mm. because you know, everything is government, uh, it's it's organized at government level. So yeah. that's also one of the challenges. And government level run by people who are fucking cis or who are white or who are, you know.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I am. Um... This reminds me that last year at some point, um, one of the Cuban trans women I follow in Havana on Facebook um, was posting about how like they were trying to organize some animal rights activism and then the government like pulled the plug on everything and like nobody was allowed to be involved in it at all. So it, is, it does sound like sometimes a difficult organizing environment if you go outside the official channels.
1: I mean, they've even said that, um, uh, I mean, the whole narrative of racism in Cuba and, and feminism, as I said, the, the revolution is feminist. The revolution is anti-racist. It eradicated all racism in the 1960s. We're done. We can put that to sleep, you know? And that's so, that's so dumb. You know, like, that's so immature. Um, uh, you know, they say that the, uh, the Federation of Cuban Women is the feminist de facto Cuban uh, organization. Nothing else is necessary. You know, if, if I would never dare say that like my queer archive is the only necessary archive that is needed in Cuba. Hell, fucking make a thousand of them. And I'm not talking about private, sorry, like private market or whatever the fuck. I'm talking about, you know, different opinions and, and, and people, you know, I'm a a white person living in the in the in, in exile hell. If somebody in Cuba could 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 create an archive, that'd be great. And I have to say something that perhaps is like um, maybe you hadn't thought about, but um, a lot of people come to me from Cuba who are you know perhaps in a better economic position or who are cis people who are journalists and stuff like that. They come to me to to tell to ask me about the queer Cuban community in Cuba. And I'm like, there's trans women living in Cuba around your house. You can ask her. You don't mm-hmm. have to ask me. And I know that a lot of that has to do with respectability, with uh, education, with the privilege I have, and with kind of like the self-titled, the kind of me saying I am an archivist or whatever. Um, but if they want information, there is not a shortage of trans women in Cuba. They can really go ask. Um, that's especially for people who are living in Cuba, who are asking me to talk about the situation in Cuba. I'm like, I don't know more than a person living in Cuba. I, I never will.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, so like, what is kind of your next move? Like, you're continuing to, I've seen you've done a bunch of like interviews with people that you were talking about earlier, this like five hour long interviews, um, you're doing all this stuff, like where is this building to next for you?
1: Well, there's two things coming, uh, those interviews I started as I was just going to interview them with a the camera, I didn't even have like a separate audio equipment, it was very like, you know, basic, and then post it. And then I was like, wait a minute, there's a lot more information here. And then they started donating photos and letters and diaries. And I was like, this is a whole story and I don't want to keep this. I would hate for some cis person to come into the archive, take everything that I've collected and say, I discovered this and then make a book about it and ignore all the work that I had done. Um, Because it took me a long time and, you know, I'm not afraid to say that I want, I don't want, you know, I don't want like money, like not, I don't want to be like Jeff Bezos from an archive, but I just, you know, I'm, I'm struggling to live. I want recognition for my work and I want to get jobs that are like adequate, not having to work the rest of my life in gigs that are, have nothing to do with what I love. Um, and I want to be taken seriously for the work I do because it is important. Um, so my work right now is headed towards getting all the stories together, all the interviews that I compiled, I'm gonna transcribe those interviews, tell those stories and I'm trying to make a book, which is a very hefty uh, kind of task for me because I've never written a full book or even a lot. Um, But I think it's really important. And I feel for the first time that like cliche writers thing that I feel like I need to write this. So I'm, I'm, I'm putting myself in that position in which I will write it and on the other end on the archive end i don't want this i don't want this to die at a at a social media capacity i want this to be an online archive and more importantly i want people to touch things and i know this is kind of like the, that like if i was <laughs> you know any other archivist would you know cringe at that idea but the difference it made for me to have my history in my hands and the way it was gate, uh, kept i guess for the longest time you know when I went to archives and they were like you're handling it like you know a maniac and I'm like wait a minute you have no idea of what's in those files um I want people to touch it I want people to have access to it and now I'm like even grappling with the idea of like do I put a watermark on it do I not do I um, how how much do I want to make it fully accessible um because as much as it is queer people coming to see their history, it's cis people coming and you know, being voyeurs and cis historians coming and being like, you know, going to the flea market to get cheap stuff. Um, So that's like, these are the things that I'm grappling with right now. The website's gonna take a while uh, because Uh, people have given me a lot of pressure, by the way. They're like, oh, you need to post more, the engagement of the page, and you need to make more more content. And I'm like, wait a minute, this is not an OnlyFans. I'm not trying to get engagement for tomorrow. This is a project that I want to love doing for a long time. And this is going to be like, if anything, I want it to be my life project. So I'm not going to get tired of it tomorrow. And I will get tired of it tomorrow if I put too much pressure on myself. Um, So I... For now, it's been like showing the archives to friends and you know preparing content and stuff like that uh, and educating through social media. Um, but hopefully in the next years, I'll have the, the website ready and going.
0: Amazing. Well, I can't wait to read a book by you about this. Um, honestly, it'll be like, <laughs> I will pre-order it the very moment it becomes available. <laughs> I'll be so excited. Um, but yeah, again, I just want to thank you so much for taking the time um, to be on One From the Vaults with me. Uh, how are people able to follow the archive? How can we contribute to the archive? Like, how do we boost you up? What do we do? Thank you so much.
1: Um, I Well, and Queer is on Twitter. It's on Instagram, it's on Facebook, and it's on Telegram, especially in Spanish only in in that platform because it's mostly geared for Latin America. Uh, Cubane Queer is spelled C-U-B-A-N-E-C-U-I-R. And it's a mixture, I have to say, of Cubane, which is like a gender neutral way of saying Cuban, and Queer, which is the uh, Spanish spelling of Queer in English, but it's C-U-I-R. And um, in terms of boosting me up right now, I have... I have only taken like very, um, very uh, random financial contributions for people who just want to thank me, and I've been selling stickers or whatnot. But mostly, it's to share them. Uh, I have been delaying the donate button for a while um, because I'm fine right now. I'm I'm a trans person living off of welfare as they should be, and uh, <laughs> and I'm good with my Trump money for now. Um, but eventually, um, I yeah. I would, I would like to, um, I'll be ready to receive donations. Um, but that, that'll be, I'll make an announcement on those social media pages when that's ready. But for now, I'm just happy doing the work I'm doing.
0: Amazing. Well, thank you so much. Um, yeah. Thank you again, Librada for joining us.
1: Thank you. I'm honored to be in your podcast. (laughs)